welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Julie Tummerler, a recent graduate of Villanova University Charles Widger School of Law and an incoming judicial law clerk. We will discuss her article, Indoor Rock Climbing, the Nuts and Bolts of Root Setting Copyright Protection Post-Star Athletica, which will be published in the Jeffrey S. Morad Sports Law Journal. So welcome to the show, Julie. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. No, this I'm really excited about this uh, because, A, I don't know anything about rock climbing other than the fact that I do actually like to watch climbing-related movies because they absolutely terrify me. And B, I thought this was a really fascinating and really well done paper on copyrightable subject matter. Yeah. And so I'm really interested for you to share with people why these rock climbing meets you describe provide such a kind of fascinating case study for thinking about copyrightable subject matter. But I think in order to do that, we're going to need you to talk a little bit about like the history of rock climbing and the creation of rock climbing roots and sort of how this works in, in practice. Yes. Uh, So indoor rock climbing uh, wasn't really as much of a thing back in the day. Uh, Rock climbing primarily existed as an outdoor sport as a function of albinism. Um, So it was essentially groups of people that chose to go ahead and climb rock surfaces outside. Uh, Rock climbing ended up developing to train for outdoor climbing. So small gyms essentially opened up for the purpose of that type of training, so that when you went back outside, you'd be able to climb harder and climb better to get to the top of whatever mountain or rock face that you are um, making your project. Uh, But in recent years especially, the sport became more focused on indoor as its own discipline, uh, especially with the introduction of indoor rock climbing as an official Olympic sport for the upcoming Tokyo Olympics, whenever we end up having that. Um, So yeah, primarily now there is outdoor climbing, um, there's sport climbing, which is uh, based on metal bolts within the wall. Um, You kind of clip in with a carabiner, There is top rope uh, where there's somebody belaying you on the ground and you're connected with the rope and climbing up the wall. And then there's bouldering in which you don't have any support um, or a harness necessarily, but the wall is only about 15 feet high. So if you happen to fall, you're fine. Um, So that's essentially where rock climbing is today. Well, maybe you could talk more specifically about the particular genre of indoor rock climbing that you're focused on in the paper and specifically the sort of mechanics of how it actually works in practice. Because I mean, I know I've never been to a rock climbing gym, although now I'm kind of intrigued to maybe check it out. Um, And I imagine a lot of other people haven't either. So like sort of what does it look like? How does it work? What do people do in order to create this sort of medium on which people do the rock climbing. Okay. So you'll essentially go to a rock climbing gym. Um, There's a front desk with some friendly people there and you'll get yourself a particular type of climbing shoe and a harness. Um, And this is if you want to do what's I'd say most popular, which is um, top rope. 
So then you'll go out into the main area of the gym and rock climbing gyms are typically very large structures. Um, There's a lot of empty space. There is matting below for safety purposes. And it's essentially just made up of a lot of really tall walls. And the walls themselves are actually blank. It's, um, in my mind, I think it's easiest to think of it as like a type of uh, heavy duty pegboard in a way. And root setters will construct roots using various type types of plastic holds, which they will then affix to the walls. So the roots are graded uh, from 5.8 to about 5.12, 5.8 being the easiest going up in difficulty. And so what you'll do is you'll put on your harness. You will do a particular type of loop with the rope that is attached to the climb that you want to do. Um, that'll secure you. And then you have your partner on the ground with their own carabiner, and they will take up the slack of the rope as you climb. Um, the goal is essentially to make it up the wall. And if you can't, you can go ahead and hang back for a little bit, kind of shake your arms out if you're getting tired. You try and get to the top. And once you make it, you rappel back on downwards. Well, so who creates these different routes? kind of what kinds of choices are they making in deciding sort of how to set up a route and how many choices do they have or like, you know, how often do they change them and why? So it's really up to the gym. Um, The gym I mentioned in my piece, the Gravity Vault Radnor in Radnor, Pennsylvania, they actually switch out their walls completely every 90 days. So it's not all at once either. They will do particular segments at a time, but I would say every 90 days, there's a complete turnover. Um, And the people who make these routes are root setters. Depending on the gym, they can be um, contract employees. They can be people that are just brought in to do particular types of setting, like for competition, um, or they can be existing employees already. And in terms of how to set there's virtually an unlimited number of choices, to be honest with you. Um, First of all, you have to think about what difficulty you want to set. So for example, a gym may have an empty space on a wall and they can tell their root setter, hey, we want a, you know, introductory 5-8 level uh, climb set up here. And that's really generally the only parameters they'll give the root setter. And from then on, they're able to use the library of holds located usually in the back of the gym to kind of decide what they want to do. And there are completely different types of holds with different profiles, um, depth of grip, different textures. And once they put them on the wall, there are still a lot of choices that they can make. They can choose to have two holds spaced really far away from each other. So you really have to kind of leap to grab onto the next hold. Or they can choose to make everything really cramped and close together. Um, they can decide to make you have to do a complete leap, um, which is a dynamic movement to the next hold. The holds can be really large. They can be really tiny. They're called crimps. They're really hard to grip onto. Um, And within that, they can also try to make the climber utilize a specific type of movement. So for example, you can do something that's called a heel hook in which the heel of one of your feet ends up kind of like on top of a hole. So a climb can be planned out in a variety of different ways. It can start with the aesthetic thinking, 
I want to look like a wave, or you can start it out thinking, I want the climber to utilize a certain type of move, for example. Well, so just to make it really concrete, imagine I'm a root setter. I go to a gym and the gym asks me to create a new root for them. Like typically speaking, how many holds would I have to choose from and how many choices would I have about where to put each individual hold in the root that I'm creating? You would have hundreds of choices in terms of the literal um, hold that you're using. And I'm not sure about like the spacing of the holes themselves, but I would say, you know, it's really up to you how many holds you want to end up using, especially as you go higher up in grade. Sometimes you'll look at a root and be like, I don't even know how somebody's supposed to climb this. There's only five holes, you know, atop the entire wall. Um, So it's really whatever you want to do. I would say it's probably about off the top of my head for like a beginner climb, maybe 10 to 15 holds, but at the same time, depending on the height of the wall, but at the same time, even though you put the holds on the wall, it doesn't necessarily mean that the climber will necessarily utilize all of them as you envision. So there's a lot of uncertainty, but there's also a lot of opportunity to make decisions about what the route's going to look like when you're creating it. And so lots of different options then, and lots of different possibilities, as I understand it. Yeah, there are, there are a ton of possibilities. Okay. So in the paper, you focus on the copyrightability of, of climbing routes and specifically you focus on copyrightability in relation to how Star Athletica sort of affected the way that the Supreme Court has defined the subject matter of copyright protection. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about whether you think climbing routes would have been copyrightable subject matter prior to Star Athletica and why or why not? I think that prior to Star Athletica, indoor rock climbing routes would not be copyrightable. Uh, They had the problem of the fact that the aesthetic and the utilitarian are completely enmeshed. Uh, You cannot take away the aesthetic from the function of the route. Um, So the function is as a training tool, you're using the holds to go up. Um, And the aesthetic, I would say, are the elements that the root setter utilizes to make the climb not only aesthetically pleasing to the person looking at it, but in terms of the movement, it ends up inspiring. And unfortunately, I feel like if you go to a root setter and you ask, you know, can you separate it out? They just, you know, just conceptually, just speaking to you, they, they wouldn't be able to. Kind of like I just talked about a little bit more earlier about how in terms of planning out the route you want to make, the aesthetic and the utilitarian choices constantly feed into each other. So for example, somebody can decide to make a particular type of climb that they want to zig and zag, and they do that and they think, okay, this is great. But once you set a climb, you actually have to test it out first. So they may test out the climb that they find very aesthetically pleasing, and they're like, this is not climbable in the way I wanted it to be. It was supposed to be a 5'9". I feel like it's more of a 5'8". Um, so there's a constant feedback going on in the root setting. So the problem is pre-Star Athletica, um, when those two factors were enmeshed, you could not separate them out um, because you kind of almost literally had to be able to separate them. And it just wouldn't be able to meet that before this case. 
So would it be fair to say kind of from a more of a layperson's standpoint then that the problem was that when you were setting a route, you may have had aesthetic considerations, but a key purpose of setting the route was to enable people to learn or to practice their climbing. And so it had kind of a, a utilitarian purpose as well as whatever kind of aesthetic or um, uh, original uh, decision-making you might've been engaging in while, while creating it. Yeah, exactly. So in my piece, I actually have an example of a route called a Christmas tree route set by uh, somebody at the gym in which it's actually like some log type of cold and it, it makes the image of a Christmas tree. It's a, it's a route that they set up for children. But at the same time, it, you know, it looks really cute. Kids would get really excited about it, but it is a functional climb. Now, if, if people chose to, you know, use the different uh, holds to set the whole gym in just ways that looked cool, it, it wouldn't work as a climbing gym. Um, and you wouldn't really, your business wouldn't end up going too well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you use Star Athletica as a sort of inflection point in thinking about copyrightability in this context. How do you think Star Athletica affected the kinds of works that you're talking about? How do you think it affected climbing roots? And why do you think it shifted their status as potentially copyrightable subject matter? I think it's affected climbing roots in the sense that it kind of acknowledges its inherent value. Um, before writing this piece, I don't think anybody saw a legally protectable value in an indoor rock climbing route. But I feel like Star Athletica, by acknowledging that there may be a two or three dimensional work of art, um, and that even though it's useful, if it's a type of expression that can be imagined separately from the useful article, even if it's just drawn on a canvas, that itself is protectable. So I feel like um, my theory kind of puts more value on the labor of root setters, where it's, it's become more of a legitimized profession, um, especially with the rise of indoor rock climbing competitions where the setting is especially important and is a focus, um, not only for interesting competition, but for fairness. Um, but I think, you know, in looking at Star Athletica as it applies to root setting, it kind of makes you have to step back and, and realize just what it is that these root setters are doing. Because, you know, I, I personally think some of them themselves may not say, you know, I'm an, I'm an artist, but what they're what they're doing is essentially creating sculptural works of art. Well, I mean, it seemed to me that part of the take in the paper, which hadn't occurred to me before, but I found pretty compelling after you made the argument, was that in a sense, Star Athletica said, "Well, you really got to break out the utilitarian aspects and isolate the original." choices and just look at those original choices and ask whether they're copyrightable subject matter, irrespective of whether or not they're useful for accomplishing some kind of goal. Exactly. Um, and I think it's very interesting looking at, there's a case I referenced later in the piece called Silvertop um, <laughs> that deals with a banana costume. Um, and the court applies Star Athletica and they say that the banana costume itself was a, had unique graphic features 
and it could be painted on a, on a canvas. And thusly, it was uh, copyrightable, even though it wouldn't have been previously in the sense that, you know, it was a useful article, that it was a costume and it, it's supposed to clothe you. So the court themselves kind of humorously acknowledged that, you know, maybe this banana costume would not be in the Philadelphia Museum of Art, but it makes specific choices that show that this is artistic. So I feel like that really helped kind of, in my argument, legitimize the um, artistic choices regarding indoor root setting. Well, I thought one of the really interesting things about Star Athletica, too, is that, you know, at the end of that decision, the Supreme Court still left it open as to whether or not the cheerleading uniform designs in question were actually copyrightable subject matter, given how kind of basic the actual designs were. But, you know, if that's the way we're supposed to think about copyright protection, it it seems like the roots you're describing are almost a gimme just because of the incredibly wide range of options you describe in terms of determining what the route's going to look like. In other words, the problem in Star Athletica was, well, there's not that many choices about how you design a cheerleader uniform. But, oh my goodness, I mean, I'd never occurred to me, but there's so many choices in terms of how you design a climbing route. So if, if, if all that's necessary is kind of minimal originality, it seems like copyrightable subject matter just isn't an issue here. Yeah, I think it's more than minimal originality. And in fact, some more experienced climbers or people who tend to go to a particular gym, um, you may actually even notice style in terms of how people set. Um, so my husband, Kevin, is the head root setter at the Gravity Vault in Radnor. And, you know, I've had people tell me about like the way he sets where he tends to focus more on larger movements where he he's six feet tall. He has he has the range to kind of like grab a hold that's more out of reach. Um, he tends to focus on stronger movements, dynamic movements. Well, meanwhile, um, somebody else at the gym may focus more on technical details where there's a lot of balance involved. Um, and so somebody may end up climbing a climb and they'll be like, oh, Kevin set that one, didn't he? And the answer is, yeah, that's, that's a Kevin climb, which is really interesting to kind of think about because people that aren't in the sport may not realize that a certain type of style develops as you uh, continue to root set. Well, reading the paper, I got the impression that you were kind of analogizing climbing roots in a way to a form of sculptural work. Is, is, is that a fair kind of assessment of sort of the analogy you're using in the paper in terms of how we should think about climbing roots as a category of work of authorship? Yeah, I think they definitely are um, sculptural works of art, as kind of funny as that may sound to some people. but. Um, people really do care a lot about the route being aesthetically pleasing, about using the same color holds in some cases, um, having them angled a certain way. And the creativity is really limitless. And a lot of root setters really pride themselves on the creative aspects of what they're doing. Um, some gyms, for example, they'll even have like little cards, almost like in an art museum, if you think about it, next to each route that says, you know, this climb was created by Kel and he decided to name it the green monster. And you'd be like, why is it, why is it called that? And it's using green holds and they're big holds and there's a lot of, a lot of large movement. 
um, and they choose a name that corresponds with the climb. And that itself is kind of like another experience. Well, so I found that really effective in the context of the paper in sort of providing a framework for thinking about uh, climbing routes as as works of authorship. But I couldn't help but wonder about other like potential analogies. Like it, it struck me that in a way you could also think about climbing routes as kind of analogs to choreographic notation almost, or maybe even as kind of, maybe this is a, a more of a stretch of an analogy, but almost like an analogy to a musical work in the sense that, you know, the vertical the vertical part of the climbing route is almost like a, like, you know, the, the, the blank musical notation and you sort of are putting the holds on almost like notes along the scale. I mean, do you think that's a fair analogy as well, or an alternative way of thinking about these climbing routes as copyrightable works of authorship? I think it sounds really funny as a concept, but I agree with you. <laughs> um, you know, especially I, I like your comparison to choreographic notation because, you know, in climbing these routes, you're you're actually planning what the person is going to experience and most likely do. So in a way, you're kind of dictating how their body is going to end up moving. Now, granted, some people end up climbing things a little bit differently. Some people can skip a hold um or choose to reach further it all it all really depends in terms of style and strength and other factors but in general that that is what you're doing i do think though that um there is an important distinction between what you're focusing on in terms of the copyright where what you're copywriting and this is why i think it works is the actual sculptural piece of art itself and where the holds are placed and how versus the movement that you're getting people to do because the court in Bikram said that that is actually not possible. You cannot copyright the um, actual series of movements themselves. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit as well about the kind of social practices surrounding indoor climbing routes that you mentioned earlier. I mean, I know that for outdoor climbing, there's sort of a tradition of different climbers naming different routes and maybe even different routes being kind of associated with particular climbers who identified them or named them or sort of was the first person to climb them or something like that. And it sounds like there's something analogous maybe going on at least to some degree for the creation of indoor climbing routes as well. In your experience, how do people within the indoor climbing community think about sort of moral or ethical quote unquote ownership of the routes that they create? And specifically, how do they feel about other people kind of copying or appropriating the roots that they've created or the ideas that they've invested into the roots that they've created? I would say as a whole, as a, an important backdrop, that indoor rock climbing and rock climbing in general is a relatively, it's a chill sport. <laughs> you know, it's a certain type of person. Historically, I kind of liken the culture to surfers, but on land, um, which people are like, oh, I can, I can kind of see that. Um, but in the recent years, I would say that rock climbing has become a lot more corporate. 
Um, you've seen a lot of investment in large rock climbing gyms. Uh, private equity is getting involved in the franchising of gyms. Um, it's becoming a really big and important market. And at the same time, there's still this backdrop of this casualness, which I think is interesting. And to some extent, I think that we try and maintain that because that's kind of the authenticity of the sport, even though it's starting to be a little at odds with what it's becoming. So I have noticed that root setters are generally really friendly people. And to my knowledge, nobody has really copied a climb in terms of, okay, these are exactly where Brendan set the holds. I'm going to take a picture of it and I am going to set them exactly the same way. Some people will you know, climb a climb and they'll say, I really like how this part of the arrangement of the climb made me do X with my body. And they may try and imitate that later. But there's a general understanding that there's no sense of ownership there. And even then, it may not necessarily be distinctive enough because, you know, it's it's movement. And I feel like even the root setters kind of recognize that. But a problem I kind of bring up is that, like I said, there's kind of increasing competition in the indoor rock climbing space. And there's technically nothing stopping me from going to the gym, taking pictures of all of the climbs, and then opening my own gym down the street and hiring just one root setter and being like, here are all the maps, go to town. I, I don't have to pay these other people. Um, and granted, it's not really a problem yet, not that I've heard of, but at the same time, maybe it's been happening and we just don't necessarily know. And so if somebody did that, do you think people would object to it? Would people feel that that was in some way infringing on their moral right to claim ownership or at least kind of moral ownership and attribution to the rights, uh, to the roots that they've created? Or do you think people would feel like, well, you know, it is what it is. And that's just, you know, somebody cutting corners in order to reproduce things that they think are going to be commercially successful. In other words, you know, if someone were to sort of do the kind of things you describe, would that, do you think that would bother people in the community? Yes and no. I think it really depends on the scale first and foremost. Um, you know, I think if somebody derives a lot of inspiration to the point of, you know, the two climbs are suspiciously similar in the same gym, but, you know, you kind of know each other, I think that they'd let it roll off their back. You know, it's not that much of an issue. Um, but the thing is, I think the culture of root setting is one that's really of pride because it's actually kind of, it's, it's a tough gig to get. Uh, a lot of gyms to have you root set, first of all, you have to be a particular type of climber. You have to have a particular skill level. Um, for example, I'm not a root setter because I'm actually a pretty bad climber. <laughs> you know, I can't be setting 510s and 511s if a gym needs me to. So first of all, you need that skill level. And then second of all, you kind of have to prove yourself to the gym that you'll be able to make climbs that people like. So some gyms, historically have even made people root set for free, um, which I personally think is a significant labor problem. Um, but, you know, you have to prove yourself that you're a good root setter. People will like your climbs. And then after that, root setters typically tend to just be paid per climb that they set, you know, no matter how long it takes them to do. Um, 
So I think that would really be the problem. It would be the fact that it's not even that you're necessarily, you know, taking money that could have been theirs. It's kind of a pride thing. It's the fact that they have this skill level and they've really put in the time to become um, masters of their craft in some sense. And then you just come in there and somebody like me who doesn't have that skill level can theoretically just completely rip it off without doing any of the work required to get to the place where I understand why things were placed the way they were. Well, so Julie, I have to ask, have you thought about registering a particular climb for copyright protection? And I guess if you if you would, I take it you haven't, right? Um, if, if you were to do that, how would you go about describing the climb for the copyright office for the purpose of registering it? Do you think to the to the best of your like kind of assessment? Ooh, um, I think it would just have to be a lot of detail regarding measurements um, in terms of hold depth, hold placement, angles of the holds, um, distance between the hold. Um, if I could include a bunch of images, I would definitely choose to do that as well. So I personally think that this is able to be copyrighted, but I think enforcement is what the issue is. Um, because personally, a lot of lay people may not understand how a climb can actually um, look different, but be similar um, in terms of the holds may look the same, but the movement is entirely different. In which case, I believe that that's still copyrightable because, as I mentioned, the movement's not the issue. But at the same time, there are some lay people that would think, oh, my gosh, like this person copied my movement exactly, but the holds look different. And that itself is not copyrightable. Um, so I think there would definitely be some confusion there. But, yeah, I think I think the issue is I don't necessarily know how it would be proven that somebody copied the client. But I think what a bigger problem is, is just that somebody can choose to be very litigious. So I talk about the Bikram case. And for people that aren't aware, Bikram is a controversial yoga instructor that created Bikram yoga, which is a type of Hatha yoga that focuses on a series of, I believe it's 29, 28, 29 poses that he called the sequence. And you take it in a room that's like heated at 104 degrees, very specific about this. And Bikram yoga really took off. And of course, like his name was protected and what have you. And he took a yoga studio to court because they were teaching his sequence. And he said, you can't do that. It's copyrighted. And the court ruled that it's not copyrighted because it's a sequence. It's the movement. And he can't copyright that before even getting into, you know, the history of yoga. And if you can own a pose for that, um, but I think what's really left out with discussion of the case and the court's ruling is just like what happened up until the point of this case getting decided where Bikram sued a lot of people. It's also why he was very successful. Like he sent, you know, his attorneys sent these very scary letters to small yoga studios being like, knock it off. And what they did was they stopped. They legally, you know, the court later decided they didn't have to stop, but that wasn't the point. He got them to stop doing it. So my concern is really if somebody chooses to copyright a climb and whether it's in good faith or not, they send a scary sounding letter from their legal counsel to another gym saying, you copied my climb, I'm going to sue you. For the gym, it may just be easier 
to be like, oh, shoot, I guess we did. We need to change out some of the holes. And I think that's a really big problem. Well, so in closing, Julie, I mean, I wonder if you could kind of reflect on that more broadly in relation to sort of what we think we're doing when we do copyright law. I mean, I think you make a really compelling case in the paper that the claiming you're describing are at least potentially copyrightable subject matter. And I think in many cases, pretty undisputably copyrightable subject matter. Is that a and as you say, that that could be a practical problem. Do you think it's a broader kind of conceptual problem in terms of when and why and where we're applying copyright protection? I I definitely think so. I mean, you know, I, I wrote this paper and I feel like, you know, as I was writing it, everything checked out to me. And at the end, I was like, ooh, did I just break the sport? <laughs> you know, like that that's kind of ridiculous. And on one hand, you know, I really want the value of the labor of root setters to be acknowledged. And, you know, I feel like they deserve more credit and recognition, sometimes literal pay. Um, But on the other hand, you know, it seems like it's great to be able to copyright it because you're like, oh, great, these root setters can protect their labor and they'll protect their work. But I don't really think that's the case. I think it's going to be that these large rock climbing companies um, like Brooklyn Boulders, for example, which has just been acquired by private equity, they can choose to just copyright a bunch of climbs, I guess, you know, if it, if it works and choose to go after smaller gyms. And these smaller gyms have really been, you know, there before rock climbing even exploded in popularity like it has. Um, and I just feel like that that doesn't really square with, the spirit of how I understand copyright law, where we're trying to protect the labor of these creators. Well, Julie, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed your paper. I love talking to you about it. And uh, congratulations on doing such great work and good luck clerking in the coming year. Thanks, Brian. Sing, but that's because.